Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. not be starting my presentation with song or dance. Uh, yesterday, I spent most of the day at the conference and I sent out some tweets, namely around Rowena's song during the Great Debate, um, I think Maggie swearing also during the Great Debate, and then again that flash mob from Tacoma. I will not be doing any of that today, but uh, I hope to still be very hopefully entertaining and impart some useful information to you. Um, firstly, thank you so much for having me at our Communities in Control. I've actually been really excited about this for at least the last couple of months ever since Dennis asked me to speak. And I think that was back in February or March. So it was ages ago. And I remember thinking back then, great, I never get so much notice before any of my speeches. I'll have many, many months to think about what I wanted to say, do some research, prepare my speech, maybe even practice a couple of times. Um, yet last night, I'm still up, <laughs> still up at 1 a.m., figuring out exactly what I was going to say. Now, um, I don't actually know where Dennis is, but before he or other people from our community get too alarmed, last night really was just me figuring out my final, my final uh, words. It wasn't me starting my speech again from scratch. Not at all. Um, now, I, I have this funny thing. I was speaking uh, to some people yesterday, and I remember, I think before 1 p.m., so before lunch, I was really calm. I was really looking forward to speaking. I'm still really excited to be here. But it was about 1 p.m., I think in part because at 1 p.m. yesterday, it was Julia Gillard speaking on that side of the stage. Uh, and also, it just finally hit me, oh, I have to speak tomorrow on the same stage. And I started to get a little bit stressed. And I guess there were a couple of reasons why I was feeling a little bit nervous and feeling a little bit angsty about exactly what I was going to say. So the first reason that I guess I was feeling a little bit weirded out was I can't remember the last time I was in front of an audience similar to the one that I'm in front of today. So a couple of things that are weird. I've got my good friend Hamish with me that I like to point out. Um, everyone wave to Hamish. Sorry, Hamish. I didn't mean to make that so embarrassing for you. Um, and there are, yes, a bunch of high school students from where I went to high school. And it's funny because when I look back in that back corner, there's also a video screen behind it that is me, so I can... It, it's actually quite um, off-putting. But the biggest difference... The biggest reason why this audience is really different for me is that you all work largely in the nonprofit and also community sector. So by and large, on a technicality, I also work in the nonprofit community sector, um, but I work for a really, really big environmental NGO, um, a, one of Australia's biggest environmental NGOs. And it's, it's really different to work at that sort of national leading Australian environmental NGO basis compared to some of the work that I know many of you are doing. So I spent yesterday at the conference getting to know a couple of different people, introducing myself to lots of um, people, normally over morning tea and afternoon tea, so sorry if I interrupted your time with tea and coffee. And I was getting a little bit of a better sense of, I guess, why you're here today, why you were here yesterday, and what you were hoping to get out of the conference. And for me, what's lovely, but sometimes also terrifying about working with communities is that Communities are so diverse and you all come from a different community and you're all working on different community projects. You're not as, I guess, for want of a better word, as homogenous as other groups that I've been speaking to recently. You're not the same as the Year 9 um, group at Xavier that I spoke to a couple of weeks ago. You're not the same as a corporate that I recently addressed or a government meeting that I had in Canberra. Even though you all work in the community sector, the thing is you're all from very, very different communities and for me that diversity is beautiful but at the same time also really terrifying because you have 
very, very different experiences. Yes, you might all work with people or with people that might also be your neighbours, but not necessarily on the same issues. Um, and for me, that made me feel a little bit like, ah, what is the one message that I can impart that will actually be applicable to the hundreds of you in this room rather than a small, small uh, number of you? Um, so I was really lucky to actually be able to take some time off work and spend yesterday here and get to know you all a little bit better, um, but also listen in on some of the presentations, uh, which I think also got me thinking about exactly what is missing from this room at the moment um, and potentially what I could do to fill that. So for one, I guess I am the youngest speaker. That was quite obvious. So that said, uh, I don't plan on talking a lot about, I guess, um, how to get more young people involved in various communities today, although I've left a lot of time for questions and answers, so we'll be happy to take questions on that later. But to take you back to this conversation that I was having with Dennis, all he told me uh, to, I guess, talk to you about today was he was like, just share a bit of your story, Lynn, and it'll be fine. Just talk a little bit about yourself. And normally that's really easy. I talk about myself all the time. Uh, my friend Hamish here, yes, can account to that. I really enjoy not talking about myself, but I really enjoy stories. I really enjoy telling people my stories so that I can later hear their story. And normally that is a really easy ask, but I wasn't quite sure which story that I wanted to share with you today, but uh, I, I guess the one that I plan on starting off with is something that Joe has already alluded to before, and you will probably also all know about me, that I have a really weird relationship with light bulbs. Um, the program sort of highlights that even more. There's my smiling picture, a little bit of a blurb about what I might be speaking to you about today, and a whole bunch of pictures with light bulbs. Um, so my weird relationship with light bulbs spans about eight years now, and it's a very, very unusual relationship to have with an inanimate uh, object. Uh, it's the longest relationship I've ever had with anything, <laughs> inanimate or otherwise. But how I came to, I guess, find myself in a long-term relationship that is ongoing, it, light bulbs will still follow me everywhere I go, actually started out really normal. So I guess my story started about 23 years ago when I was born in Melbourne's West. And life for me was pretty normal. I had two parents. I have a younger brother who I fight with all the time. Um, and I have parents that I also fight with all the time. And I went to primary school, and before you knew it, I was in high school. I played the French horn at school. I performed in lots of musicals. I played tennis and netball on the weekends. Most things were pretty normal. Now, I know the French horn isn't the most normal of instruments, but, you know, playing a musical instrument seemed like a normal thing to do. I had a really great family. I had really great friends. And life wasn't all that bad at all. And life certainly fit in with all conceptions I had of what it meant to be normal. It wasn't until one day that I realized maybe I wasn't that normal. And I think this happens for all teenagers. I think teenagers, anywhere from the ages of like 12 to 18, experience a lot of you know, teenage angst and they get really angry about the world and they get really confused about their identity and who they are, who their friends are, who they're going to become in life. And I certainly had that. But my, my realization was a little bit different. My realization was maybe I'm not normal, not because I'm changing so much now, but because my upbringing was really, really different to my peers. Now, at home, um, sorry, at home, I had to do chores. I had to help my parents out. I had to be nice to my brother and occasionally babysit him. Like, these were all relatively normal things. And one of the other things that I used to do quite a lot growing up was reading. And I remember distinctly reading in my room one day and the light went out. Um, and that obviously is not a very rare occurrence. Lights go out all the time. 
there was nothing special about it. And I told my mom, hey, we need to go pick up another light bulb. Can you take me down to the shops? So we went down to the shops. And it was then that, for whatever reason, most supermarket visits are not this crystal clear in my head, but this one was. My mom was picking out the lights, and she put in a couple of fluorescent lights into the shopping trolley. Uh, for those that don't know, fluorescent lights are the artistic swirly kind as opposed to incandescent lights, which you would often see in cartoons when people have bright ideas. Um, so I remember my mum putting in that, uh, sorry, I remember my mum putting in a fluorescent light into the tro shopping trolley. And I asked her, why are we spending $8 on a light bulb when we can get that one for 50 cents? Like, you know, maths is simple. That's a $7.50 saving. Uh, there was me, the 15, 16-year-old, clearly thinking about budgeting already. Um, and it was something that really struck me. I was like, I don't understand why we're doing this at all. It doesn't seem logical. Like, shouldn't you be aiming to spend less money as opposed to more money? And I really remember my mom's answer. She sort of just looked at me and was like, well, obviously, Lynn. Um, I think she actually rolled her eyes at me as well, uh, which was fairly typical to some of the questions I used to ask of her. And she said, it's really simple. This light here, the fluorescent light, uses less electricity. Therefore, it means that we won't have to spend as much on our electricity bill, and we also won't be using the necessary resources that you would have to put into an incandescent light bulb to generate the same amount of light. Uh, and for me, that was just sort of like, oh, right, okay. Clearly, life isn't run according to economics and what's cheaper and, you know, what in the short term might cost you less, but in the long term cost you more. And it was around that time I started putting two and two together and observing more of the things that we were just doing at home that I had always thought were normal just because that was how I was brought up. So it was everything from having a limit to how long my showers could be well before Melbourne had a drought and we had to um, have water targets and save water. I always had to eat everything off my plate. I had to help out in the garden because, of course, we had a garden. Um, I had to turn things off at the plug. And these were all things that I thought were really, really normal. Um, wasting things was just not an option at my house at all. Like, it was never an option. And purchasing superfluous stuff was never an option either. I don't think I ever had a, like, brand-named toy, for example. I never had any of these things that a lot of my other friends had, you know, Christmas or birthdays were not about gift giving and they weren't necessarily about throwing more stuff at my brother and I. It was, it was more about experiences, I guess, and like doing these things that weren't that wasteful and weren't that um, resource wasting. And sure, that was my experience at home in my home life where I was learning, huh, interesting. This is not, you know, how necessarily everyone lives. When I go over to my friend's house, they all have incandescent light bulbs. Their parents are okay with them not finishing off all the food on their plates. Interesting. Um, but I sort of combined this with what I was learning at school at the time. So I was in Year 9 at Braybrook, and it was in some different science and humanity classes where I was learning about climate change. Now, there was something about climate change. Um, it wasn't the polar bears. It wasn't the cute animals. There was something about it, and I think it was, uh, I guess, the enormity of it as a problem that really got to me, and it really stuck to me. Uh, and I can't always necessarily explain why I decided at that moment in time to suddenly care about climate change, to care about the environment, but I did. And I was like, wow, climate change is a huge issue. It's still a huge issue today. I didn't really know what to do about it then. Um, and eight years later, I still don't really know what to do about it now. And obviously, climate change is still a really big problem. And it's a really big problem because Climate change isn't very tangible. Uh, it's, it's too much carbon in the atmosphere. We can't necessarily see carbon. Carbon is something that actually also naturally exists as well. So explaining it and understanding it and how it actually impacts people and environments has always been like a tricky thing for me. Um, 
I was really lucky though that I actually did, ironically enough, one day have a light bulb moment. And I had this light bulb moment when I realized all of these little things that my mum and dad were making me do at home were essentially stopping climate change in a very, very small way. I didn't know this at the time, but I guess in the last eight years of having worked within the environment space, I quickly realized climate change exists for a number of reasons, but some of the key drivers as to why climate change is still an issue today is because of how we overconsume resources and the resources that we're choosing to overconsume as well. Um, we're overconsuming in terms of the material things that we choose to constantly be purchasing. We're picking the wrong resources in terms of our energy. So Australia is in the middle of a great minerals resource boom at the moment because we choose to invest in coal and various fossil fuels as opposed to solar, even though we're the country that has the most like direct solar sunlight hitting it. And these were all things that didn't quite line up for me. And I realized that wasn't how I was raised at all. Sure, it was on a much smaller scale, like doing little things such as not taking long showers or turning things off the plug. But I guess that was my contribution to not over-consuming and not consuming the wrong resources. And it was then I realized, well, okay, this light bulb thing. It seems fairly easy. If an incandescent light bulb is that energy inefficient and will over-consume unnecessarily poor resource choices, why don't I just get people to change over to fluorescent light bulbs? Easier said than done. Um, and that year, I was in year 10 at the time, so I think it was uh, 2006. I had a really great opportunity at my school to be able to design a local community project and do something within my own community. Instead of deciding to do something small, like changing a couple of hundred light bulbs, I decided that I wanted to change a million light bulbs. Um, and see, every time I still tell people that, I sort of think back and just go, Lynn, you were so naive. How did you ever think you were gonna change a million light bulbs? So, I don't know a million people. And even with the advent of the internet, I do not have a million friends across all of my social networks. Uh, a thousand at best. <laughs> Thank you for the laughter, that's, that's okay. Um, I have friends. Like I said, this is why I brought Hamish here today to prove that he's one of a million people that I am connected to. Uh, no, but I didn't have a million friends. I didn't know how to reach a million people. I don't think I'd ever seen a million people in my life. I mean, the most that I probably would have ever seen was maybe going to a game at the MCG, so maybe 40-odd thousand people. Um, that's certainly not a lot of people when you're thinking about trying to change a million light bulbs. And I didn't necessarily know how to go about changing light bulbs. I was 16 at the time. I had no experience in anything aside from going to school, doing homework, and rehearsing, like, scales on the French horn. That was the extent of my like worldly experience and knowledge. So how I planned on changing a million light bulbs, how I planned on making my impact and like trying to do something good for the environment in terms of climate change, I have absolutely no idea. The one thing that I had in terms of skills that I didn't mention was I was really good at speaking to people. Um, I was really good at having essentially no shame when it came to speaking to people. I had no problem introducing myself as, hello, my name is Lynn. Yes. And I'd like to talk to you today about light bulbs. And I would do that in a way that didn't make me sound like a salesperson, uh, but it also did not make me the most popular kid in school because who wants to be friends with a girl that is only talking about light bulbs? Fair enough. I understood that. But that was basically what I did. Um, knowing that I could never reach a million people myself, I told a lot of people about what I was working on. So I talked to people within my school, I talked to people in my local community, the people that I played sports with, the people at the school next to where I went to school, people in local councils, people in the environment space, and slowly they started to talk to people as well. And the more people that I started to speak to, 
the more people were willing to speak to me. So suddenly I found myself speaking to local councils, speaking to small businesses, um, medium-sized corporations, large-sized corporations like Philips. And I found myself speaking to all of these people, and that's probably still the only skill I have, speaking to people. And as I was speaking to these people, it was interesting. I wasn't asking them to do anything drastic and different. Yes, most, some of them understood what climate change was. Some of them understood the enormity of climate change. But many of them, all of them, understood what it meant to go to the supermarket, buy a different light bulb, and change it within their own homes. And it was that simple. Um, well, solving climate change isn't that simple. But I had boiled down what I was hoping to get people to do, change their light bulbs, into a really simple ask of, hey, can I talk to you about light bulbs? I gave them some facts about the lights. I gave them some facts about climate change. And then I would ask them, would you be okay changing your light bulb at home later tonight? And most people said yes, because it's, it's a very non-confrontational ask. It would have been weird for people to have said, no, no, I will not change my light bulb. Um, although that did happen to me once. It was a, she was a very cute 80-year-old Italian grandmother, and she was quite angry, and she hit me with a wooden spoon. Um, <laughs> I know that sounds like I've just generalized an entire generation of like old Italian nonnas, but that did happen to me and I was quietly quite terrified. That was the most confrontational experience I've ever had from speaking with someone. And since then I have avoided that community. Um, <laughs> this is a sad but true fact of my life. Uh, it means that I just have to go to Ligon Street to eat my uh, daily dosage of Italian food now. But, that was all I did, and I spoke to a lot of people, and lo and behold, for some reason, the campaign really did take off. Slowly, it wasn't just me talking to people anymore, but it was the people I was talking to, also talking to other people, talking to people within their own communities as well. Um, and over the course of 18 months, I obviously did eventually grow tired of speaking just about light bulbs. Over the course of 18 months, I started to see lights change all across communities. I saw it happen, well, not in my own home, but I saw it happen in my neighbor's house. I saw it happen in my friend's house. I saw it happen across whole communities. And it was really interesting to watch that as soon as one you know, local city council would say, sure, we're happy to change the lights over in our office building, the local city office building in the next suburb over would be more than happy to do exactly the same. It's sort of that idea of, I guess, dominoes. When one person does something, the ripple effect does happen quite quickly. Um, for me, one of the coolest light bulbs light bulbs that was changed out of the million was when I, because uh, we did a lot of internet tracking as well, was when I heard that someone in Sweden had randomly heard about the campaign through a friend they had in Australia through, I believe it was a high school exchange student from Sweden who was staying with his host family, decided to change their light bulbs within this like Swedish community as well, within their local school. And it's things like that. I had never been to Sweden at the time. I didn't know anyone in Sweden, but there I was slowly reaching out, amazingly, to a million people. Part of that was through the internet. Part of that was really just through the ability to speak. And the other part was, that's what communities are really great at, uniting individual actions into a greater big thing. And that's how a million light bulbs were amazingly changed. Um, and what was really interesting for me about changing the million light bulbs was, I think by that point, I had learned a lot more about the political system as well, and I'd learned a lot more about climate change. And I quickly realized a million light bulbs is awesome, but it's probably not gonna fix climate change. If anything, climate change is worse now, so obviously, I haven't solved the world's problems yet. Um, and we sort of, the group of people that I was working with, so really it was just a group of young students that went to all different schools across like 
the inner Melbourne region, we started to do some letter writing and we started to not just write letters at random to one another, but we started to write these letters to politicians. And maybe it was because we were young and we were naive and we were like cute looking and would be great for the media. A lot of these politicians also agreed to meet with us. Um, I now know this as advocacy, but back then I was just like, great, I'm writing someone a letter, I'm meeting with them, I don't really know who they are. Sure, I've seen them on TV once or twice before, but... I don't think they're that important. Like, they're just like me. They're just like anyone else that I've talked to. And we started to have a lot of these meetings with politicians. Uh, and a couple of big environmental NGOs were also working on similar issues around the time. And in 2007, Australia actually became the first country in the world to ban the selling of incandescent light bulbs. Um, for a country that at the moment has really protracted and redactive environmental policies, it's amazing that we were once, like, the world's first to do something really environmentally positive. Um, thank you for the applause, just so I could grab some water. That was really useful. And Australia was the first country in the world to do this. And this, at the time, blew my mind. I went from this girl that had to change one light bulb in her bedroom to somehow changing light bulbs in her community to somehow being, well, through this campaign I've been working on, we've changed a million light bulbs, to suddenly no one in Australia being able to buy incandescent light bulbs anymore. You should really, uh, next time you're in a supermarket, check out your supermarket, Aisle. I remember the first time. I went down the supermarket aisle and I noticed the light bulbs and I was like, wow, you actually can't buy incandescent light bulbs anymore. It didn't really hit me until then. And that was only a couple of uh, years ago. It turns out people don't buy light bulbs all that often, so there was a lot of stock that they still had to get rid of, uh, something I had not factored in. Um, I eventually went on to graduate from high school and when I was at university, I was lucky enough to do a lot of work with the United Nations. Um, I did a lot of work with the United Nations Environment Program. Now, the United Nations Environment Program is a huge, huge, big intergovernmental organization. It's based in Nairobi. Uh, and what was really cool was UNEP decided to adopt this campaign as one of their flagship programs that they were going to run, that they were going to try to convince countries all around the world to also ban out the selling of incandescent light bulbs. And they brought me on, I guess, in part as a consultant, someone that had some experience of doing it at the community level within Australia to combine with them more, I guess, like senior hobnobbing with ministers and things like that. And since then, about 40 countries in the world have banned the selling of incandescent light bulbs. And this includes that was, sorry, I'm going to, it's nice to actually have a reason to sort of duck off to the side, but 40 countries in the world have done this, and yes, there's about 200 countries in the world, but that, for me, is really phenomenal, um, and I feel really privileged to be, to have been able to work at the super, super local level where I grew up in West Footscray to hanging out in Nairobi and talking to environment ministers from Mexico about how they should consider banning the selling of incandescent light bulbs because Mexico City surely needs fluorescent light bulbs more than anything else. Um, I guess that, that one story that I wanted to share with you just then really was two stories that were quite pivotal in my life. Um, one story was about how I worked with my local community and the other one was how I ended up working with the UN. Uh, I didn't really focus a lot on the UN side of things, mainly because... It's a very, very weird world, uh, and we're here today to talk more about community. So I wanted to focus on that. And it sort of sums up most of my life, actually. Almost all of the work I've done has either been, in a really direct sense, working with the people on the ground, with people that potentially could be my neighbours, people that I could see, you know, going on my morning run or whatever, to in this completely different world where I'm in the UN and I'm meeting people that I've only ever read about before and yet there I am talking to them in a very weird and different international space.
And both of these things are really, really different. So it's funny that my professional experience now spans these two sectors. And they're really different, and I'm sort of okay with them being different. I'm sort of okay with having to use different parts of my brain, having to use different skills that I have. I'm not particularly fussed as to, you know, which one I should be working on. Should I be working on local action or, like, international diplomacy? And for me, it doesn't matter because climate change is still the issue that I really care about, and all I'm looking to do in life is actually make an impact on that matter. So I'm not too fussed as to how it works. And having worked with communities before, I sort of have a pretty good understanding of how to best work with people, how to best work with people that could also be your neighbours, how to connect to people and how to connect whatever the issue that we're working on is to their own personal experiences. I get how you can create change through working with communities and having spoken to many of you, I know that you get how the work you're doing is making an impact as well. Yeah, at the same time, I've also worked at the UN and I've worked with a lot of governments and occasionally corporates as well, but a lot of it has been with governments. and I. I understand how lobbying and advocacy can also work. I understand how going to Canberra can sometimes be really important. I understand how going to like these big international UN conferences and talking about policy and often the rhetoric of policy can be really important. I, and I can see how that has made changes as well. So, you know, one great example of that is the Millennium Development Goals and some of the work that that's led in reducing extreme poverty. And I get how both of these things work, even though they're really, really different. Um, That was sorry. <laughs> You're the best audience I've ever had. Um, normally people don't, don't clap when I need to just get a drink of water. And I, get, and I get that both of these worlds work. And I get that you can work in one or the other and work towards creating change. And that's really important. And I don't think the question is about do you have one or do you have the other. So that's why yesterday's great debate was really funny to me in terms of should you know community groups be merging to form bigger NGOs or become bit part of bigger NGOs. I don't think the answer is obviously that black and white and that simple. And although we know which side won the debate yesterday, it doesn't necessarily reflect what's going on in society and what's going on in our day-to-day -day work. And I've been thinking a lot about this, and this was in part why I was up at 1 a.m. last night. And I was thinking about how the community space, how people working with their communities on the ground can actually intersect with what's going on in this multilateral space. I do think that you need both. Community initiatives are often great at actually delivering really tangible, project-specific, things that are relevant to people within that community. You understand your situation more than anyone ever will, and that's why the work of communities is really important. That said, climate change is the issue I care most about. A lot of my friends also really care about global extreme poverty or access to the internet or um, access to clean water and things like that. And a lot of these global issues, unfortunately, can't be tackled just at a community level. A lot of these global issues are happening because there are broader systemic changes that need to occur. And we can't just drive that through 7 billion different individual community projects, unfortunately. And those changes do need huge institutions to be part of, not just huge NGOs, but huge things like the UN, huge things like you know the Australian government and other governments around the world to also be involved. And yes, I don't think it's about one or the other. But at the same time, the question that I keep thinking about, and I'd love to have some thoughts on this uh, when we go into questions is, how do you really connect the two? A lot of people um, ask me all the time, what do you want to be when you grow up? Do you want to keep doing community campaigning in like local Melbourne or wherever it is you happen to be? Or do you want to work for the UN one day? And I think my answer is really neither. I love both worlds for 
very, very different reasons. I hate both worlds for very, very different reasons as well. Um, often, sometimes it's complementary and opposites and things like that. But the question that I keep asking myself is, how do these two different worlds intersect? I'm in a really unique and lucky position where I've been able to work with people directly, but I've also been able to work with senior, you know, policy decision makers and things like that. And that's the question that I keep asking myself. And it's, I, I guess I'm really lucky in my day job, this is what I'm working on at the moment, is how can the work of what you're all doing here today in your own local communities feed into these bigger governmental processes, whether it be international or national? But how can you know, these big institutions better incorporate your work, better listen to what you're hearing from the community rather than making decisions just through academic or like policy or economic advice? Uh, and that's something that I haven't quite figured out yet. And I'm sort of hoping that one day that can be sort of the third story that I share with people, not just how I figured out how to work with local communities or how I figured out you know, I could be effective within the UN space, but how I could actually link up these two very, very disparate but for me anyway, hugely important lines of work in creating change. Um, and I'm going to end it there and hand over to Joe for questions. Lynn, thank you very much. I guess all that contemplation of light bulbs makes you think globally. I'm glad that no one, um, none of my jokes had that response. Sorry, Joe. <laughs> It's a dad joke. <laughs> Thinking globally and acting locally. That's an old adage. So let's, uh, are there some questions we have? Because I think that was a really stimulating talk. I'm glad you've got time to stop for some breath. And uh, it was overwhelming, really. It was, but it was terrific. And really, your enthusiasm has captured everybody. I can see that. So do we have some questions or some comments? If you figured out how to intersect the UN with local community stuff, I'd love to talk to you. <laughs> and world peace. Yeah. <laughs> Just the little things. Today. Yes, we have one over here to start things off. At and two there. Yep, thank you. So one straight in front of you, Lynn. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Cassie and I'm from Ballarat and I just wondered when you were going through the whole a million light bulbs moment with other young people, how did you get them motivated? Were they thinking the same way as you globally or did you just bring them along because um, they thought it was exciting? Like how did you get, keep them motivated because you're very motivated? Um, yeah, so I think, thank you for that question. I think it was a variety of different things. So, and it was probably a mixture of the two. Some people were just there because they were my friends and I had dragged them along. Uh, and yes, I think like my enthusiasm and motivation for life means that I'm very good at convincing people to do what I want, particularly when it was my other 16-year-old friends who didn't you know, exactly have a lot of other options of things to do. It was either between working with me on this light bulb campaign or going to the mall. Uh, and I think I painted the light bulb campaign to be a little bit more exciting than shopping. Um, which actually can prove to be quite difficult. But at the same time, I think the, the funny thing about that campaign was most of the people I worked with didn't go to high school with me. They all went to different high schools and often it was just, you know, that one person from that one high school as opposed to, you know, I was working with 10 people from the same high school. And I think that often happens because when I was growing up anyway, around that time, yes, I was figuring out my personality and who I was, but I was also realizing I care about a lot more than just having a lot of money and having the nicest clothes and, you know, having pretty hair. Those weren't really things that mattered to me 
and I think that um, it can sometimes be a really isolating experience as a young person to realise you care about not just global issues, but you actually care about something beyond yourself. Um, and I was able to find a lot of these other young people in other schools, in other pockets of the world that also cared about something beyond themselves. Uh, some people realise that earlier on than others, some people realise that later on than others and I think that was why we were all really motivated because suddenly we were surrounded by people uh, that were our, our own age as opposed to you know someone that was 30 that also really cared about solving climate change that we could connect to on a different level and I think that was how I was able to motivate people because I tapped into... I guess we connected over values more than anything else. And a lot of these people that I worked on that campaign with are people that I still speak to today. These are people that I spent, you know, two years working with on this light bulbs campaign. But we were both, you know, we were all really young then. We were 16. We're all doing really different things today, but we all still have the same values. We all still care about something beyond ourselves. And that was how we were able to motivate one another. Thank you. Uh, a second, just in front of me, just... Um, you can answer your own question. How did you interact with the UN? Did you approach the UN? Did they approach you? What was the story? Oh, the UN story. Uh, my UN story is multiplicitous, if that is a word. Um, <laughs> so I, I've had lots of different involvement with uh, the UN. So the UN is broken up a quick like, history of the UN. The UN is broken up into the General Assembly, which is what happens in New York that most people know about, but then also different agencies um, and bodies. So the United Nations Environment Program is one such body, but the World Food Program is also another body, and then there's you know, something around, around like natural disaster relief, the Framework Convention on Climate Change, and the list goes on. Like the UN family, as Ban Ki-moon likes to refer to it, is actually quite extensive um, and has close to 100 different associated agencies that are a part of it. So how my work came about with the United Nations Environment Program was they actually approached me. Um, I think they had learned about my work through someone or in some form of media and they had approached me. Uh, but since then I've worked a lot on the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and that was less me approaching them but me just working within that space. So it's sort of taken lots of different shapes and different forms. Um, and the role that I've played within the UN has also been quite varied, which is reflective of how big an institution it is. There's lots of different roles that you can play. So I guess I've been an internal part of the UN system where I've been on the staff payroll um, and the UN is my employer and working on projects through that mean. But at the same time, I've also attended UN conferences in a more like advocacy and lobbying position with NGOs that I've worked for. And I've also gone to the UN in more of a journalist capacity as well. Um, and I guess that's why I think that I do have a relatively good understanding of how the UN works. But I've never, yeah, I've never been able to fully bring on that like community organising or that like local community initiative hat within to the UN space. It often just gets lost in a world that is filled with numbers and policy and things like that. I've got a little question. Yeah. Um, Lynn, as a young person and engaging with those big international institutions and even the national ones, do you have confidence in the pol in politics? You must have, you must have to a certain extent, because you're engaging with it. Yeah, this is this is another I one. Think, of oh, look, I just think sometimes uh, there's a bit of a despair around about about politics. But you engage with these politicians as a young person who might might have more more uh, cause to be cynical than others. But uh, but you 
I think, are showing away there and engaging with the institutions that are there. Uh, so this is another one of those internal questions that I grapple with late at night. Um, so the first that I've shared with you is how do I intersect local stuff with the UN stuff? And the second is do I work within the system or do I work out of the system? Uh, and this is something that I have spent a lot of time thinking about. For me, I guess the way that I see the world changing, especially on the issues that I care about, so let's use climate change for that example, is that really broad systemic changes are needed. Changes are needed not just like in my personal living room because I changed a light bulb, even though I think you know the work that I did there was great and the work that people have done there in terms of like energy efficiency within their homes is really important. Um, climate change is not going to be solved if governments don't act and if governments don't push corporations to act and if governments don't... Governments and corporations are really multi-billion dollar institutions in of themselves. And I think that... These are the people that need to do something in order for climate change to be stopped. It doesn't matter how many awesome energy efficiency uh, or like local transition town projects will occur around the world. That will not solve climate change. Um, and in that sense, I'm really cynical. Uh, I think like my outward demeanor of being smiley, happy, I talk really fast. People think that I'm very optimistic about life. And I, I am because I do choose to continually engage with the process. You're right in saying that, Joe. But I'm also really cynical because I know that a lot of the problems that I think are really important that I'm working towards having an impact about are ticking time bombs. Um, if we don't do anything on climate change by 2015, all of a sudden, all of the parameters that I've been working within change again. So that's why, for now, I'm choosing to work within the system, and that's why... And when I say within the system, I guess I mean within the bigger, broader economic and, like, political framework structures that we have in place, and one of those is government and politics. And that's why I choose to work within the system, because they're going to be the most effective at actually enacting some of this widespread change and, you know, come 2015, if that hasn't worked out, then I'll have to revive my anarchy ways. <laughs> Very good. Well, I've got one question down, just down again in front of me. Thanks, Lynn. Uh, Jennifer, you may have answered the question already. I was going to ask, who are you working with now and what ac actions are you finding are having an effect and just as what, what can we do, mm -hmm. both at the community and the larger level? Um, so I didn't mention who I work for now, probably because I feel like I work eight jobs. Uh, my, my formal day job is with the Australian Conservation Foundation, so we're, here's the spiel, we're Australia's um, leading environment organisation in terms of like size and political clout and things like that. We've been around for 50 years. Uh, I work there as the community coordinator, so it's funny, I actually work for a huge environmental institution of an NGO, but I lead all of our community organising efforts, so I'm actually constantly working with the people and finding out exactly what they're doing. Um, so that's what my day job is in. And something that I've seen to be really effective within that, and it's funny because I haven't quite figured it out yet, is leveraging some examples of what people are doing within their own community. So this could be things like um, lock the gate out in Gippsland or people blockading like various coal um, expansions and things like that. How that local work, so very similar actually to um, the presentation we had from Tacoma yesterday around the No McDonald's. How can that work best be supported through a huge national NGO that has the ear of the media and also the ear of like government as well? Um, and it's not too dissimilar to my question of how do you connect local initiatives with the UN. It's how do you even connect local initiatives with like a bigger NGO without, you know, the bigger NGO necessarily coming in and taking over completely. Um, it's something that 
I've been experimenting with, I guess, a couple of different options as to how that could work. Do we just sort of provide support through um, getting whatever local story it is into the national media or getting them access to politicians to take it to like a completely new level? And it's, I don't quite have an answer to how that actually happens yet. Uh, but in terms of, I guess, what people can do within their own local communities, and I think many of you are doing this now, is that it's actually really important to just engage. It's surprising how few people do simply engage with the process, whether it be political ones or just getting involved at their local community garden and things like that. And I think without having that immediate connection to someone else in your near vicinity, um, within your own community, around an issue that you might care about, there's no way that governments are going to listen to one individual, but they will listen to whole communities. And just down on your right, we have a question there now. Uh, yes, I, I was just going to ask a question. Is, is that you know when you said you know an idea for um, with the UN? I was thinking one of the best things you know you started with the community, and then it's a big jump to the UN. I mean, is there? An, I mean, if you went to, you know, if, if we thought about it, if we could get one government to do it, that could go to the UN like the community, but that would be the community pushing the government to get the UN. Just yes, thought. no, thank you. Um, I certainly think that that is definitely how I worked on my light bulb campaign through the community and that eventually led on to government and then that eventually led on to the UN. Um, unfortunately, I think that my story is a very, very rare one and it's not one that happens often and many awesome local initiatives never go beyond the community that it's within. And, you know, often sometimes that's okay because it was important to the people that were living in that particular place in that particular time. But sometimes some of the UN meetings that I go to are really abstract because they'll be talking about issues without ever knowing how it's impacting the local people that they're actually referring to or trying to help. But at the same time, I'll sit in local community meetings and people will be talking, be talking about things and only about their own backyard and completely disregarding how, you know, in the suburb next door or in, like, the country, well, Australia's really far away from things, but in the country a fair few hours away in an aeroplane, people are starving and people are losing their homes and livelihoods. I think, you know, a recent example of this is, so many local community initiatives are awesome, but no local community initiative is necessarily going to be able to effectively tackle the way that Australia is treating our asylum seekers at the moment. And it's how do you, how do you deal with the two? Um, how do you bring them closer together? And how can you create impact through, I guess, combining the two as opposed to just doing one to lead to the other or doing one instead of the other? Yeah, but that's an interesting thought that I will think about more. Thank you. Uh, we've got one, a question here just on this table just in front of us. Hi. Um, very inspir inspirational talk. Thank you. I'm from South East New South Wales. Um, I'm just wondering or reflecting on whether your experience as a young person as being um, both a part of a local community and a global community at the same time is something that is shared by your generation more than any other that we've seen today. And I suspect technology and social media has something to do with that. I'm wondering if you could comment on what your generation, you know, young people, can bring to, um, a, what sort of new perspective you can bring to the sort of social issues that we haven't seen before. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. Uh, I totally agree that I have an awesome community of people that I love hanging out with in Melbourne, 
But when I think about who my best friends in the world are or whatever, I'll name you 20 different people that all live in 20 different locations and I'll see them once every three years maybe, but I'll be talking to them all the time through like these various online options that we have from, you know, texting on our phones to Skyping people or using Facebook or whatever it is to keep in contact. Uh, and that is really awesome. And I think that is really unique to be able to say my best friends are not the people that I can like walk towards. Like, I don't live really close to any of my really good friends. Um, a walk would take me at least two hours before I got anywhere. Um, so I, I think that that is probably really unique within my particular generation. Um, and people that I guess have the luxury and the privilege to be able to travel around the world either for work or for pleasure as well. Um, in terms of what young people can bring into some of these issues is there's so many things that, that young people can be be doing. but Something that really struck with me yesterday when um, the Tacoma presentation was going on was Gary mentioned there, were, there was a 63-year-old grandmother or something that um, got involved in one of the protests and that's not who you would normally expect. And a little part of me got really irritated at that. I hate it. I, I really do hate it when uh, the 63-year-old grandmother is always pulled out as the example of someone that is unconventional and would never get involved. It sort of, you know, paints this portrait of people that do get involved in protests as often being young people who are uneducated and often don't know better and are like too, you know, optimistic and naive about the world to be doing anything. And I don't think that that's true. And even though I am a young person, I guess I've started to try to think not just about how young people get involved, but how other people can also get involved. Um, like I was saying before, I think just engaging is the first and most important step. And I, I don't think it's just young people that have that responsibility to engage as well. Um, I think through my education anyway, I was really privileged to be in a position where getting involved was really easy. And often young people get involved because we're at the front line of a lot of these issues. So the recent budget makes it really hard for young Australians to get an education, to be able to find employment. Um, I mean, the fact that young Australians can't seek, you know, Centrelink support if they're unemployed under the age of 30 is absolutely crazy. And I think one of my most important things that I often talk to um, about with my friends, especially of the same age, is it's not just how we can continue to keep engaging now, but how is it when we turn 30, when we turn 40, when we might become more financially comfortable within our lifestyles or our job security or whatever, how do we make sure that we keep engaging as well? Yeah. Sorry, that was a roundabout way of answering your question. Thank you. And now we've got one just down in front of you again. Hi, Lynn. My name's Jane. I'm part of a group called Street Bank, which used to be called The Sharehood, which is all about sharing with our neighbours. And uh, one of the questions that I often get asked is, oh, what happens if somebody breaks something? Or, um, you know, what, what do you, you know, how do you get involved? And I, my response is, well, that's up to the individuals that have created that arrangement to share items to it, that sort of stuff out. And so my question is essentially uh, around self-empowerment and what you've been talking about. And, you know, I sort of look at all these amazing people in the room and all the amazing things that we're up to. And I think we all have that question of, well, what's the most important thing that I should be doing? And I'm, you know, I'm constantly asking myself, well, you know, if we were all to boycott certain purchases or certain activities, is that what's going to make the difference? And mm -hmm. I very much agree with you in terms of it is often the large uh, infrastructure and the large aspects, but what is our role as individuals? How do we empower and continue to empower ourselves and each other to go, well, actually, no, I'm going to say no to mm -hmm. that and I'm going to say yes 
for these new things. I want these. I want a wind farm in my backyard. Give it to me, please. I really want one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think one of the most self-empowering things that I've personally done myself that allows for me to work on the things that I have and, you know, potentially achieve the success that I have as well is I've given myself the permission to be wrong and I've given myself the permission to fail. And I think as a young person, that's actually something that isn't taught to us at all. We go to school being told we need to get good grades, we need to pass, otherwise we won't get into university and we won't get a job and we won't, like, you know, we won't be set for life. Um, but life isn't about always just passing through and I think when people, you know, adopt that mentality that they learn from school. You just have to keep passing and you just have to like be okay to get past the line. That's how we become really complacent and lazy and start doing things like, no, I don't want anything to change in my community or no, I don't want to try anything new. Um, by being okay with failing, it means that you're going to be okay with trying and being able to take that risk. And, you know, I try to obviously fail well, I don't, I don't set out to fail, but um, I set out to make it okay to fail by at least thinking through my decisions in terms of how many other people will this be, like how many other people will be impacted if I do fail. And for me, that has been really empowering. Every project that I've embarked upon, I have no idea if it's going to work or not. I have like, you know, I think about it, I'll read some examples, I'll read some best practices, but I have no actual foolproof way of saying this is going to work. And I don't ever know that because... A lot of the projects that I'm trying to work on are trying to change some of these systems. So it's not as simple as me going to school and getting a degree or, um, you know, working in a corporate job and moving my way up the ladder. I've, I guess I'm trying to, in some ways, circumvent actually working within this, in the system even though I engage in it. And I think that if everyone in society was okay with not always being okay and okay with trying and okay with pushing themselves, then that is actually a really personally empowering thing. Just down towards, uh, behind the cameras there. Oh, right, yep. Lynn. G'day, Lynn. Andrew Conley. Thank you for your speech and what you've been doing and what you will do, I hope. Thank you. Uh, my question is a short one. Should we lower the voting age to 16? Oh. I forget that you can see me. Um... <laughs> um No. I, 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 no, no. I, like, I, I'm sure I have deeper thoughts about this as well. Um, but no, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't... So I do think our democracy at the moment is a little bit broken and government and like politics in Australia is like totally whack. But I don't think lowering the voting age would change that. I don't think increasing the voting age would change that. I don't think removing compulsory voting from that will change it. Either. I actually think that the fact that we have compulsory voting is like awesome and yes there are like terrible things about it but generally great. Um, I think it comes back down to how people choose to not just exercise their vote but what they choose to do in the three years between every single election cycle that we have as well. Um, so no, I, I don't think that we should lower the voting age or at least not if the aim is to change the way that we engage with politics now. Thank you. I've got one just down in Thank front you. of you. Hi, more of a comment really than a question. Um, one of the biggest issues that's facing us in the community service sector, if you take out the money, the fact that we're underfunded and the government, um, it's... Other than yeah. that, other than other that. Other than that, little <laughs> small <laughs> issues. Um, there's also trying to attract Gen Y to come over to industries that are really typically unsexy 
So I work in aged care and abuse and it's, ve it's very unsexy. And what basically you've given me today is the idea that if we make it easy for kids to jump on board early, we give them the information and the education and make it easy, they'll come. Mm -hmm. They'll come. And so that's given me a lot to go home with and start on. Awesome. So no, that's super exciting. I'm glad that you've taken something away from this. Um, I guess I have, do I have time for a comment? No. Okay. Yes, yeah, I'll move yeah, on no, to the you've question. got some time for a comment. Make a comment. Oh. If you've got one tonight. <laughs> I did at the time. Um, so last year, last year, uh, sorry, the lights are very bright. No, last year I spent a lot of time in um, the United States of America. I was there on a study tour with their government to learn more about their civil society. Um, and actually one of the big differences as to why this community here, like the people in this room here and the work that you're doing in your communities is worlds ahead of the work that is happening in America right now is... Um, Unfortunately, in America, they've put a lot of work into trying to make these things sexy, sexy, but they've done so in a way at the detriment of actually creating the systemic changes. So I went and visited a lot of organizations. Um, so one was called United Way. They're, they're an NGO that works with communities. Their budget, um, yearly budget, is a little over a billion dollars. Uh, and the work that they're doing is basically the same as any corporate greenwash that you could have. And that billion dollars, billion dollars, sorry, it's a, it's a large amount of money. I'm unfamiliar with saying it. Um, that large amount of money all came from primarily the U.S. government in an attempt to attract people to work within the community services industry as opposed to actually fixing some of the issues that these people need to be working on. It was, um, yeah, I'd love to talk to you more about that later and how to actually recruit young people because I've seen some particularly disastrous attempts in America. Working? I'd like to transfer via electricity my question over to one of the 35 students here today and I'd like to give you some electricity this, this way to ask Lynn a question because I know I've spoken to a few of you and I know you've got some really interesting points of view so I'm just about to throw the microphone. Yeah. Don't. <laughs> we'll lose our bond. Yeah. I know that uh, some of these young people will have an opportunity later to meet with Lynn, but, but perhaps there is somebody from over there who has a question or something. You can, you're with friends. Thank you. Hi, my name is Isabel and I'm from Benigo Senior. And my question is if you could specify some direct ways as to which young people can be involved in the wider community, like in the community sector or local government or in the, even in their student council at school? Um, sure. So I think, and my answer to you is probably going to be applicable to everyone else in the room as well, is if you want to get involved, get involved. Research and find out what's available within your community. If nothing exists within your own community, maybe look at the community next door, maybe start up something yourself. Um, and something that I learned as a young person that also proved to be really useful, aside from making it okay for me to fail is always asking for more. Um, some people tell me I'm very demanding and pushy. I like to think of that as I am very self-motivated, empowered, and I know what I want. And if people aren't going to give it to me, I am going to ask for it. Yes, it's within people's you know prerogatives to say no, but if I'm not going to ask, I'm never going to know what the answer is. And sometimes it's in addition to making it okay to fail, it's 
giving yourself permission to go after what it is you want in life. Um, I see a lot of young people say things like, oh, I want to study X, Y, Z, or, you know, I wish that I had more flexibility to do this, or I wish my parents would like, or my teachers, like, whoever the authority person, like, whoever the person in an authority is, but they'll never take their complaints beyond complaining to their friends and their peers to actually ask for what it is they want. Um, and the more often you ask, well, the more often you'll hear no, but eventually you will also hear that yes. Lynn, that, that real, that's all we have time for. Thank you very much. I, th I think when we see people like uh, Lynn and the young people down here and so many of the young people that we, uh, that we engage with, it does give us great hope for the, for the future. I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more about Lynn, though, over the years. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the Communities in Control Library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes Store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.